Winter. Hello and welcome to the 22nd of these podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gomatra. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk with Gordon Buchanan of Tobermory. Born in Alexandria, outside of Dumbarton, Gordon moved to Mull with his mum, brothers and sister in the late 70s. In our conversation, we cover lots of anecdotes about growing up in Tob, building dens, raiding gardens for fruit, local characters of his youth, the challenges of going to school in Oban, his love of horses, and towards the end of the episode, how he came to work with Nick Gordon, wildlife cameraman. We leave off our conversation there just as his career begins. These days, Gordon lives in Glasgow, and I was made very welcome at his beautiful home where we recorded this episode. I'm delighted to say that this episode has been sponsored by Tourist Mara. Tourist Mara have been running seabird and wildlife cruise tours to the Treshnish Isles and Staffa for almost half a century. Sail from Ulva Ferry and visit the awe-inspiring Fingal's Cave and commune with the puffins and their many thousand relatives. For further info, visit www.tourismara.com or find them on social media. And Tourist Mara is spelt T-U-R-U-S-M-A-R-A. The whole What We Do in the Winter project has also been sponsored in kind by the Island Bakery, and everyone who takes part in it gets a complimentary packet of lemon melts, which has swung a few people around to talk to me, believe me. (laughs) Have a look at their website on islandbakery.co.uk. As ever, the links to the topics covered can be found on the website at whatwedointhewinter.com. And now, with great pleasure, here's Gordon Buchanan. Who are you? Uh, I'm Gordon Buchanan. <laughs> Simply that. And where were you born, Gordon? Uh, I was born in the Vale of Leven uh, in Alexandria um, in 1972. Um, it's sort of it's quite funny because I fill out a lot of passport application forms and different application forms, and, and it says, "Where's your place of birth?" And people automatically assume because I'm sort of a windswept traveller that I was born in Alexandria in, in Egypt, but it wasn't. It was the Vale. Who were your parents? My mum uh, was Margaret Mac- Mackenzie. She's now Margaret Adam. My dad was another Gordon Buchanan. Um, and they, my mum came from farming stock. So they had a farm. She lived in a, born and grew up on a farm in Gardaharn. And my dad was from Dumbarton. And they met sort of back, I suppose, been the sort of late late 60s uh and yes fairly quick succession there were sort of four four Buchanans thereafter um so it's that that you know it's funny because I really do identify myself with Mull and feel like a Mulloch but for the first seven years of my life I I lived in in Dumbarton and there's sort of you know it's a funny but I can't drive through that on the way back to Mull now I can't drive through that part of Scotland without thinking about kind of my time there what could have been different or what might have been different had we not had we not moved from there. What was the catalyst to move to Mull from Dumbarton? Well my my mum and dad divorced sort of I don't know it was probably about three I think and we were living in a place called Bellsmire which is a big um, housing estate in in Dumbarton and it, it, sort of, it was one of those housing estates after the, sort of as the shipyards were collapsing and people were being moved out from inner city Glasgow they, they were moved out to places like Dumbarton so there's lots of green fields but on those green fields they built high rises and big um, housing estates so it I think my mum being on her own with four very small kids in a kind of rough, a rough area, yeah. I think she realised that if she didn't move, um, you know, we, our, not, not, our, not our prospects or our futures, but I think just the kind of quality of, of life um, would be much better somewhere else. And we had a relationship with, with mum, my grandparents, my mum, my dad's uh, uh Mum and Dad, so my nan and granda, had a caravan on on Mull, so that was where we we kind of holidayed, and they'd sort of been going to Mull since the, I think since the the fifties, um. So it seemed a natural place. I think my mum felt secure there. I think she felt that was a kind of good place to move her 
her her young family. So do you remember going there as a kid on holiday then? Yeah, I do. I think sort of those early memories of going to Mall are, yeah, very vivid. Um, What sticks out? It's weird. I can't actually drive that road from Craig Muir to Taub without thinking about, I don't even know what year it would have been, but before the double track road was put in and you're driving along this single track road there was grass growing up in the middle there was the forestry had come right to the side of the road so it was like narnia so it's just that that in itself i i don't remember the ferry i remember driving up the lock site like lock lomond but that's craig near to to tob and i always remembered the sort of first sight of of tob as you come in it's not it's changed with the, the new road but it was always sort of a sense of arriving in somewhere special somewhere that's important so um, where was the caravan? Um, it was, I was going to say it was beside Willie Mann's garage, but that's that's gone now. So if you come in, you in to, come into Tob, mm-hmm. so past the Welcome to Tob and Worry sign, mm-hmm. and the roundabout, you take a right, as if you're going down the Aisbury, and then you take immediate right. And so Janet and Archie McDonald live on the right-hand side. And on the left-hand side, I think most, all the trees have gone, but that was a wee kind of coppice of sort of mixed oak wood. So there's a wee woodland there. Um, and in that kind of wood, there was a, a lower bit and Anne and Andy Russell lived in a, a wee caravan there. And then myself, my two brothers and, and my sister, my mum lived in a caravan um, a wee bit further up at the back of that. So like, it, and the, if you looked out the window, it was really lovely because you're surrounded by trees. Yeah. But at the back, it was literally a scrapyard. So in the days when cars didn't get sent off the island. It was the days the cars were piled on top of each <laughs> other because there would always be something, something of, of use. Yeah. And um, it was, it was a fantastic, we were there for the first two years on, on Mull. And I loved it. You know, I didn't have any sense that, you know, the, the flat that we lived in in Dumbarton was, it felt huge at the time, but I think it was pretty pokey. Um, but just sort of being, somewhere that you could literally walk out the door and explore and there was sort of with that that part of Taub has become still not that developed but there was very little very little there so you could walk out from the caravan and walk past Willie's garage and and that was sort of just you know woods and there was Sunat view and there was um the eerie downs of um through the gate but you know you could really sort of walk a hundred yards and think you were a hundred miles from from home but yeah I think the first winter so it must have been mm. winter of 79 and it, I, I, I haven't looked at the records but it was <laughs> ridiculously cold oh, I think just sort of with kind of like a do sort of a wee gas fire in a caravan um and it was I just I do remember that other than sort of having this opportunity to sort of explore um being very very cold was was something that sort of you know has been burnt into my into my memory so after that we spent the next spring and summer in the caravan but come the second winter we got a, a holiday let so a chalet over at Strongarve. Oh, so yeah. when the kind of tourists all went this place was was sitting empty um so we moved into that for the for the winter uh, and then sort of like many people back then you know as you said yourself you kind of sort of home, sort of yeah. homelessness on on mall and yeah. maybe it's better now than it than it was i'm not sure but pe- families were just moving around from you know caravan to caravan to sort of holiday let and, still the same story um and eventually we we ended up um living in abiona on Victoria Street, which I thought was like a palace because it was bigger than any house I'd ever, you know, ever ever been in or lived in. Uh, but it had just cr- chronic dampness. And we we're in it, I'm not sure how long we we're in it, sort of a, a number of years. Um, yeah. And then it was, it was condemned. It was sort of seen, oh. it was, it was deemed unfit for human habitation. And that popped us of all the way to the top of the council the council health list. So we, we got um a lush pad in Rockfield. Fantastic. Rockfield's a great part of town as well. Yeah. Well that was always sort of you know, it was that was like the cribs in the hood sort of you know, back <laughs> growing up in the sort of <laughs> early seventies, there was, you know, this sort of rivalry or different wee gangs and 
groups of kids with huts and it was divided sort of, you know, the, the Rockfield, Rockfield end of town, sort of Bedarvan Street, Victoria Street, yeah. and then over the, over the, the, the far side. So, um, yeah, it was sort of ending up in Rockfield. I thought, well, that's no getting away from it. I'm, from, I'm, I'm yeah. a Rockfield boy now. Straight out of Rockfield, <laughs> yeah. So what, would, what were the dividing lines for? What, would, what was the culture of the, the, the different gangs? I don't know. I, I think... They were different. Well, I think just geographic, like the thing that divides sort of cultures and societies and language is just about distance. Yeah. And the world has has shrunk. Yeah. And you know, rarely were we in cars in the in the sort of early eighties. Yeah. Um. So you walked. You walked everywhere. You walked to to school. Um. You know, to walk from the top of the spray to the to the golf course was that was a for a wee kid that was a. a a long, long way. So I think there was just these natural boundaries that, that formed. So, you know, to go over and play in Rockfield, it wasn't something you did every every day, but it was sort of a sense of, of you know, going to a different, a different place. And places like Derving and Salon, that was off the map. <laughs> the kind of strange people that lived yes. on this same... There was no sense yeah. of... of um, all island. being island islanders, <laughs> it was really kind of you know. Benesson was, um, you know, I met some people that had been there, but it was, <laughs> and that's funny, you know. Back then, different within the different towns and villages, there were accents that sort of people had. There would be yeah. a sort of you know, you could do an Im- imitation of somebody from Derwig or someone from yeah. Salon, and I'm sure they did imitations of people from yeah. from Tob and yeah. and that. What, what, what were those accents? Do you know, I thought you might ask me that. I'm not, I, I wouldn't be prepared. Not that I'd offend anyone, but they're probably not as good as they once were. But it was something you would you would definitely do. And the way that people dressed as well, there yeah. was sort of those definite sort of lines. But um, I think to people from Tob were... I think the notion was that they they thought they were a cut above. And I never, I certainly <laughs> never thought that. But there was definitely people in the town that... Dead. <laughs> Walk the walk. Yeah. <laughs> so of, of your pals uh, making bothies in Rockfield, who are you still pals with to this day? Um, I don't know if we're unusual as a gr- group of friends, but there's myself, Norrie McDonald, Alan Malloy, Marcus McEwen, Colin McIntyre. We're all, I would say, still very close. We're still in each other's lives. Yeah. Um, not to the extent that we're kind of like having jam pieces at each other's house after after school, but um, they've kind of you know they were they were there at the beginning and they'll be there till the till the end. And um, I think I don't know why that is because I meet lots of people from Mull that have no kind of bond with the island, have no connection with the people that that live there. Um, but that's just the way it was for for us. We're really good. We're good pals, and we've remained. Kind of good, strong, strong friends as we've all, I was going to say, all grown up. That's not not quite true. Not <laughs> as we've all grown older. <laughs> and what sort of things did you do as a as a young team? What were you running around? Is there anything you can say? <laughs> well, there's definitely things I can't say. Um, when we were very young, you know, Tobermory was a was is an amazing place to to grow up. Yeah. Um, I think the sense of freedom that you you can have in a place like like that um, is is kind of unparalleled. And sort of there's a there's a safety and security that maybe not so much nowadays, but certainly when I was younger, you know, you knew you knew everybody, um, and yeah, it was just a a great place to to explore. I don't know whether it's because I came from. Uh, a different place and I was sort of the new kid or whether it was just in my nature but I, I really enjoyed and still enjoy time alone mm. so when we weren't sort of messing around I did spend a huge amount of time just sort of kind of lost in my own, my own world um, so you know I think nothing of you know heading along the lighthouse path or Aris path by myself or kind of heading up into the the forestry or or just exploring the woods or the there's a lot of old sort of on the way out boats yeah. uh, in the bay and I would just go and 
mess around in by myself, just yeah. go into them and, and, and hang about. And I sh- I'm sure had anyone noticed me, I used to think it was sort of, you know, it probably was com- invisible to, to adults then. But thinking back, you know, people see things and they kind of like, you see patterns in, in kids' behaviour. Yeah. I thought, God, if I saw a child sort of doing some of the things sort of that I was doing on my own, I'd, I'd think, God, I feel really sorry for that that wee boy but I, I was like it was n- further from the truth because I had yeah. a great group of friends Aye. but I also was sort of equally happy in, in my own company that's lovely to hear because that's my son <laughs> my son very happy in his own company as well it's and, a good thing I think I, that's sort of at that I, I, I feel sorry for people that are dependent on on other people um, yeah. I think so yeah being content in your own company and being self-contained is, is a really good is a good thing, um, and it kind of gives you, you know, human beings are the biggest distraction in the in the world. And if you want to kind of like, you form your own opinions and have your own thoughts and be lost in your own world, you can only really do that alone. It's not to say that you can't do you know do those things with other other people, but they're always coloured by the presence of of other people. But as far as the kind of the stuff that we got got up to, there's just um, building hut hut building was that was the thing um and different parts of town there would be different huts and scoping out new territory was a really kind of big thing so like places that were like right under your nose yeah. you'd be like found a, an amazing place to build a build a hut and it's like literally sort of like 20 meters off of the kind of the from the school or yeah. um just at the back of someone's someone's house but in the course know, yeah but the sort of prized possessions were if somebody could give you a door or a couple of doors or on one occasion there was a hut made of three doors and that's you've literally got wow. your hut there and you can obviously garnish it if somebody gives you a, a bit of carpet that's you know you've got a did palace you, did you ever have an old car chair no i don't think oh i don't think we i don't think we did i think furnishing was sort of that was sort of the last the last thing but we um myself nori McGuinness and the sort of others would come and go. Mm-hmm. We um we had the hut of all huts out at Drumfin. Oh. There was some French I don't know if they still come, but there used to be these um French scouts that used to come mm-hmm. to, to Mull every year. And they had camped up at Drumfin and they had sort of made a quite a well formed, established camp there. And after after they left, we went up and inspected it and we decided sort of to renovate it and improve it and we spent it's hard to say when we you know commenced the project but it felt like a long time every and to walk out to Drumfin was it was too too far Mm. to do after school so it was a weekend project and we troop out but mostly Nori and I um McGuinness most of the time but then other people sort of Alistair Campbell I remember coming coming out and helping us um but the plan was when it summer holidays came along we were going to we were going to live there for the wow. whole the whole the whole summer and there was an oven oh, built, there amazing. was a kind of stone wow. oven there was sort of bunk beds there was no roof on it so that we were, I think we must have been hoping for for a good summer um we used to take um Nori's uncle's dog Cora out with us and so we we need a kennel so we built a wee kennel uh, this, actually some of the I think maybe my fondest childhood memories were not so much the building of it but the the excitement about this is a finished project that yeah. we were going to be able to to let this is our own place no one knew about it, as far as we knew no one no one knew about it um and then the sort of final touch was um it was Nori's uncle i think it was cameron had uh, a carpet that he was thrown like an old swirly kind of sort of 50s carpet uh and he said asked us if we wanted it so we took that out in the back of his pickup uh and heaved it up into the into the woods and it was complete unfortunately it's a very sad ending to this story we went up one day and someone had devastated it with a chainsaw literally cut it to pieces there was nothing like i know it was and we like we hadn't i I think nails might have been on short supply so we're kind of like using old bits of rope and whatever whatever we had so all this stuff had been scavenged and scrounged over months uh and it was it was gone. Actually, next time I'm back, I'll have to walk up. It's kind of pretty much opposite. 
it's before Bobby Butter's house yeah, yeah. of as you're coming out, watch, yeah. uh, coming out of um, Tob. It was up on the on the right hand side, and it's probably not that far from the road. Um, certainly, kind of, yeah. you were never aware of vehicles no. then, uh, but realistically, it's sort of you know spitting distance off the off the new road. But yeah, so we never got to, we never got to spend uh, a night in it, but oh, we had lots rubbish. of many 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 happy weekends um, planning and yeah. building it. So, do you have any idea who it was that chopped it down? There was, of, uh, as ever, it. obviously, Mal's never <laughs> short of a rumor or two. Um, I wouldn't like to say that none of them are around anymore and I wouldn't want their surviving relatives to feel that that was him because I don't have any conclusive evidence unless <laughs> unless anyone knows anything. I would like to know who it was uh, and then take appropriate action. You, you very much made your own worlds as young people. You made your own entertainment. You made your own. You talk about uh, your own imagination going off and, and being in boats and things like that. Did you also go off out in boats as well? We did. Um, like Nori and I were sort of from primary three onwards, sort of thick as thieves. And old Nori had a he had a, a boat um, that had initially didn't have an engine on it, and we used to row out into the bay and. We weren't that fast. Oh, Nori, young Nori was never that fussed about permission. So we, we used to sort of it was our own personal pleasure craft, and we would sort of take it out to Calve and out to sort of round the round the bay. I mean, heading out sort of past the bathing boxes that was sort of, mm. you know, that was in the high the high seas. But again, that that added an, another dimension to to living in in Tobermory because yeah. it, it it allowed you to leave and really have a sense of of leaving that place and I always remember of being out in a boat in the bay and looking back and you you felt that you'd you had vanished and that yeah. you were looking back on everything as it as it was and I really that was really exciting at that at that age and maybe that was the first sort of formation of a, a kind of adventurous sort of way of way of life for me. I liked yeah. that. I thrived on on going to places that other people didn't go to. As the years progressed, sort of there was a seagull engine in the back of the, the boat, so that meant we could go <laughs> go places f- further and, and faster. You know, I think we were really feral's maybe not the right word, but feral in a way that nobody really knew what we were up to what we were doing and Free sort range. of yeah and and I think it's uh, it saddens me and I know that times have changed so much but it it does sadden me because I think kids these days and Harris our son you know I'd like him to be doing well actually no I wouldn't like him to be doing all the things that we did but um it was sort of you know, I'm I'm kind of reasonably happy with how I've turned out, and and really happy with you know my my childhood. Yeah. Um, and I I kind of you can't help but want the same for your own for your own kids. That sense of freedom uh, and also home, I think, is what mm-hmm. what really appeals to me about uh, about our, yeah. our island. I think there's a sort of a sense of belonging. No, I think there is a sense of belonging that I have, and I feel um, Mull is is my is my home yeah. and it's sort of shaped my outlook on on life and it's made me the the, the person that I, that I am um largely and i think it was good to sort of to have had an upbringing where there was no kind of guiding force people weren't sort of saying right okay this is what i've got planned for you to yeah. today literally you know my mum would go to work and sort of you know you came back at the end of the day and you could be you know up to, to all sorts, which, you know, we often, often wear. I think we were quite innocent when we were younger, like sort of, well, <laughs> mostly. Um, uh, but the later, sort of as later years, probably we got 11, 12, 13. Um, it, it, it's knocking on people's doors and running away. I was just a fiend for that. I just couldn't. <laughs> Couldn't There's help myself. There's still an myself. old woman in Rockfield waiting, going, "Hello, hello." Oh, it's terrible because I, I, I just, 
it was never planned, but it would be bought, and it would, <laughs> Street particularly, just because all the, door, oh, the doors in a row, um, and <laughs> you knew it would take them a while to get up from their tea. So I, I do apologise wholeheartedly to sort of the occupants of Bradarban Street in the, in the early 80s, but I loved the fact that you know the boys never knew that I was going to do it, so it was just knocking the door, and then you run away, and they're, they're behind you. But other things that I, you know, I loved sort of, I loved doing and the the culture of was um, raiding gardens. That was oh, right. Have you have you have you? But you were really kind of nicking apples. Now, yeah, yeah. Right? Wow. That was uh, that was a sort of festival <laughs> uh, back kind of in in at that time. Yeah. That's all the kids. Not all the kids, but that's certainly the kids that I hung out with and respected the older kids that's what it was about was nicking apples nicking plums um you know there's there's places you could, you could pick them for for free but where's the fun and fun in that and we obviously always gravitated towards like the place you're most likely to get caught or that someone yeah, had been yeah. had been caught and and it was it was catnip to us we just couldn't resist it and it, because it's the first you know, maybe the first kind of real non-fight-related adrenaline that you get when yeah. you're kind of hunkered down in in Jimmy Klein's garden amongst his peas, and and he's at his back door, kind of like shouting out, "Who's there?" And you just have to have to lie there. It was real, and 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 growing up on sort of Second World War action films or movies, you sort of you you enter that sort of mind of a sort of like. A, a military strategist that yeah. you like how are we going to do this plan it out and um I, I loved and i don't know i can't remember how long that would have lasted for but it was a big thing maybe three maybe we did it sort of might only have been three or four years that it was raiding was the was the thing to to do um but who was, it, who was the best to do back of Bredalba um Street there was um on Bredalba Street there was um Humpty's house, so it was, it was uh, Ken, it's a quick Ken Macquarie's father. Okay. <laughs> who must have been retired at the time, and he had, was it a plum tree or an apple? It was an apple tree, uh, and you had to climb on the roof of his garage to get them, and he was in his house all the time, and he must have, he must have seen us all the time. Every once in a while, he'd come and, he'd come and chase us, but that was, yeah, that was a temptation, because we used to walk past there on the way to, the way to school, um, at the top of the, the um, middle bray, on the right-hand side, the, the dentist's old house. That that was that was the Fort Knox of of fruit protection because it had a high wall on all sides, yeah. so you had Quite to. A drop. Yeah, well, there was a sort of sneaky way in. You could d- go down the back bray, uh-huh. and you hopped over the wall where they'd built like a con- concrete kind of reinforcement sort of thing that you could jump onto that, walk along along it, and jump into the down into the garden, and you were still in the cover of the and you. You just sort of snuck, you snuck out. And I remember, like, it had been in people's gardens. I remember working out that if the lights were on and it was a dark night, they couldn't see anything. So quite brazenly helping yourself to, um, you know, people's <laughs> produce. Um, it is totally warm with you, stuff. But, yeah, I'd, it was... We, we just did it for fun and it was bonding and it was, I suppose, yeah. that sort of you're kind of daring each other and, and, and you're making your own making your own fun. And I think that sort of, if there's no one that's providing entertainment or distraction for you, you, you know, you, you become very resourceful in a whole number of number of ways. And, and that was one way that, you know, just sort of didn't just keep us happy. It, you know, it kind of, it was very fulfilling to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to be criminals. Yeah, indeed. Fructose criminals. <laughs> The other week we were in Madrid, there was myself, Nori, Alan and Marcus, and we were just chatting. We'd actually listened to Spank's podcast and we started talking about sort of growing up in, in Tob. We got to a point where we were sort of bored. I think probably kind of autumn, winter, it, it, it kind of, we just make our own entertainment. One thing that I think I was the sort of instigator of was spying on people. That was just... <laughs> You just pick a person. You go down onto the main street, oh, right. and you pick a person, and you spy on them. So you, you, you just you just follow them. We had all these wee kind of rat runs at the back of the main street that you could duck in and yeah. in and out. It wasn't that sinister. We didn't follow them no. home and sort of sort of peer through the their windows or anything like that. Yeah. Mostly, um, but uh, yeah, that was one way to kind of pass an evening. Kind of epic games of hide and seek 
down on the pier, oh. like way, way past the kind of the the age that you'd normally be playing TIG, um, we would do that, but on, on, on quite a big scale, there'd be lots of different kids. And I don't, I can't, I can't remember what the boundaries were, but I think he pretty much had the whole of Malta in oh. which to hide. Um, but one thing we were kind of, oh, we needed to take this sort of, to an, a new level of, of entertainment. So, Katty talked about local characters. There was, um, you know, people like Pluto, who was actually a really lovely, a lovely man, or certainly I re- recollect him as being a lovely man. You could tell that he was sort of, he was an interesting character that lived, that lived a kind of different, a different life. Um, he used to live up in, um, for a while he slept, I don't know for how long, but he would sleep up in the, um, the old, um, clubhouse at the golf course and then he for a while he was a lodging at in the Strathbeg boat that was tied to the the fisherman's pier which was sort of sort of out of commission and he lived in there for for a while but other characters Dykes and Agnes I'm sure you've kind of heard of they were real you know very very prominent people you could hardly go a day a day of your life without without seeing them because he walked for miles and miles and miles um and yeah if they weren't sort of walking from rockfield or out on the you know the roads collecting firewood they'd be sort of sitting in the shelters and i think we never really got a chance to to talk to them um, you know, Agnes didn't ever really say much, but Dykes kind of, you wouldn't sort of approach him and, and really sort of engage him in conversation because that's not what you do when you're, you're kids. But we, we must have been interested enough about uh, in Dykes and Agnes to kind of sort of form a plan. So we, again, I think it was my um, genius idea that we just go knock on their door and tell them that we were doing a school survey um, because we wanted to see inside their house. We wanted to kind of see... <laughs> We wanted to know as much about them as possible. So there was myself, I think um, Alistair Campbell, McGuinness might have been there, I think Norrie was there. So he went and knocked on Dykes and Agnes's door yeah. and uh, they answered. And we're like, oh, we're just doing a, we're just doing a survey for the, for the school. And they're all oh, come out, come, come away in, come away in. And we went in and, and sat. And they were living, you know, sort of very, very simply, like kind of, you know, under the, under the poverty line. Um... So it was interesting to be, you know, you know, welcomed, uh, welcomed in, and um, and really, sort of, at that time, you know, we certainly kind of, you know, were living in a in a simple way. So you, it was interesting to see people, or, or, or humbling to see people living, you know, um, in a way that sort of, you know, would shame most of us. But anyway, that sort of probably wasn't our consideration back then. We mm-hmm. just sort of, so we started asking questions. I think we must have written them down. Uh, and, and I can't remember what any of the, the questions were, but it got to one point. We said, um, do you think there's enough fund? <laughs> do you think there's enough funds in the town? And um, Agnes sort of piped up and said, oh, yes, I think there's a lot of fun in the town. There's a huge amount of fun. And because we'd said fund and not fun, we just kind of burst out laughing and he realised very quickly that we were just sort of taking the mic and we'd sort of had to scramble out of his house and Alistair Campbell kind of like went for what he thought was a door and it was a cupboard in the hall, like a sort of wardrobe and he opened that and it was full of logs and all these logs tumbled out and we all kind of like scarpered out from um, from Dykes and Agnes's house. I remember being told this as a as a kid and I don't know, it seems incredulous, but I, they were so tough that I can imagine it, that they used to, to row from, from Taub to Call, and Agnes would row and Dykes would, would fish for mackerel off the, off the back. Whether it was the other way around, whether it was a true story, but there were that sort of, you know, hardy, hardy folk that, um, you know, that, that kind of just don't really exist anymore. really um kind of quite blessed with a sort of you know happy-go-lucky existence and just you know being kids and 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 having and having fun um but things kind of kind of dramatically changed for me must have been about 
10 or 11 and I started, we went, we kind of scraped together some money to go pony trekking. The, the McDougalls used to have a trekking centre just sort of um, uh, at the top of the, the spray on the other side oh, of the roundabout. Yeah. Um, I always felt it was something for, for tourists and we thought, all yeah. right, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go. So I think it was five quid for an hour, or maybe 250 for kids for an hour. Right. And Nori and I went along and... I just fell in love with, with horses and being around them. Uh, so we went back a couple of weeks later and then I just started hanging hanging around. So from the age of about 11, 12 until I was of, you know, 15 and a half, that was my life. I kind of ended up kinda, wow. well, getting a job but just working for the McDougals and um, Willie and, and Netta and Robbie McDougal and Janet McDougal were sort of, you know, it was a, a family family business sort really? of um, in different shapes and forms over the years. But I, you know, I, that's all I did. Not before, I wouldn't go before school, but after school, I'd run home, put on my wellies, an old jacket, and I'd be at the horses until time to go home. And then every weekend, sort of noon till night and then all the, the holidays that's all I did and um, so it, it kind of removed me for a period of time from you know other kids in yeah. in Tob and, and I think it was just that I, I was a lot of the time when I was going out to collect the horses in the, in the morning and saddling them up and sort of just just doing all of that stuff that you need to do at a trekking centre yeah. and feeding them all and it wasn't just horses it was, it was a wee croft as well so there's um, sheep and, and cows and goats and chickens so, and I loved I loved it I really um, maybe it was because you know I remember going to my grandfather's farm and I, but I loved being around those those animals and, and wanted to be you know I, all I wanted to do was work with horses that was I was convinced um, you know because my birthday fell before I would have to sit any O levels, I could leave school. So I like I I, I said to my mum, actually, I'm not going to do any O levels because my birthday's sort of tenth of April. I'm just going to wow. going to leave because um, I'm going to work with horses. And because I suppose my commitment wow. to to being around the horses of you know spanned half a decade. My mum was yeah. like, well, there's, I can't imagine what else you would want to do because that's sort of that's all you're interested in. Um, until brilliant. I hit fifteen and a half, and then I think kind of. Yeah, it, it, it sort of changed things, I think, a little bit. I kind of grew out of it in a way. What is it about horses in particular? Do you, do you still have horses yourself? So? No, I, I am. I've never, horse, so. I've never, never owned, never owned a horse, and I suppose nor would I. I don't think. Yeah, I've never owned owned a horse, and I always thought, oh, you know, if I ever like had enough money to to have a horse I absolutely absolutely would what I love about I think they're they're incredibly beautiful and majestic mm. animals but beyond that there's a, a sensitivity to them that that involves careful handling you know that was just the way that it was when I got to know you know maybe there was sort of 20 25 horses that that um the McDougals had back then but wow. all very very different a lot yeah. of that the temperament was dependent on what what breed they were but individually they were characters and to to work with them and to 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 ride them you had to you know it was a it was a kind of a relationship that you had to build up there was there was sort of um you know some horses that wouldn't let certain people anywhere near yeah. them and and some you know you, you had to really not just physically control that horse you had to mentally sort of like mesh mesh with it yeah. you couldn't control it mentally but you you had to sort of emotionally um bond with it and i i, I really i really liked that but i suppose again it was just a, an opportunity to spend um long days in kind of nice wild parts of um of the of the island you know that's pretty much all i did for a big a big period of uh of of my life um and i i yeah i still i look at horses now and i have that you know a very very strong connection to them and i think i kind of see them and i 
especially in like it's funny living in Glasgow because like, on occasions you'll see a mounted policeman and I'll sort of largely ignore the person that's riding the horse I think I don't know you I couldn't guess anything about you other than you other than your occupation but the horse and the way that it moves the way that it sort of moves its head the way that it sort of holds itself and it's its entire sort of physical cadence I think I know I kind of I can understand you and I sort of, you know, whether it's right or wrong, but I think actually, you know, the horses, well, actually it's not, it's right that animals of all sorts of different species like do recognise people that have a better connection with them. Because yeah. some people just aren't good at, you know, some people aren't good with horses, some people aren't good with dogs, some people aren't good with, with people. Um, so it's all about relationships and sort of making sure that they go well. Which brings us to Open High. How was it having moved from uh, from school in Tobermory across to Oban? What was that like? Well, I didn't have to to stay on. So at that time, you could do you could complete fourth year in in Tobermory, mm-hmm. but if you wanted to go to fifth and to do fifth and sixth year, you had to go to to Oban. And we were the last class to to go over to Oban from from Tob. Mm. So that was eighty nine nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. They were building. The high, top high school is is at, at the moment. Yeah. I think it was it was quite exciting. I think getting to that age, we were sixteen at the time. Just sort of, uh, I remember that year, my sixteenth year after the horses. I kind of I was getting we we're all getting pretty bored. Summer was yeah. amazing. There was there was always sort of you know even if the weather was bad, there was stuff you you could do or wanted to do. But the winters were were pretty pretty tough and and just 16 and walking from the McBrain's Pier to sort of the hydro shop and back and forward and back and forward and to break the monotony you'd go into the Mishnish and buy a toasty and sort of stand in the wee kind of foyer there you can go into the bar but they would serve you toasties in the in the um, through the back door to the bar, there was nothing to do. I think at that at that age, there's no kind of youth clubs. There's nothing really. There was a youth club when we were, we were younger that Scott Murray kind of mm-hmm. sort of very honourably set up, but then that kind of fell by the wayside. But that you know, sixteen, I think I was getting to the realization that it was time to time to leave, and um, you know, we'd walk this back and forward, literally clocking up miles and miles, and it would be it would from outside the hydro board turn round and walk to the McBrain's pier and turn around and we just walked back and forward back and forward there was, there was only sort of me and Alan Malloy were kind of that was us there's probably a rut on the pavement from just all of our pacing oh. but when we, when we went to Oban High School that was sort of you know we weren't moving out of our guile but that was they were different folk and, and I didn't know you know really what to expect I had no great desire to to prolong my education but I didn't know what else I was going to do at, at the age of 16 um, and I remember my mum and and Eileen Malloy Alan's mum sort of they were friends or still are friends mm-hmm. um, saying oh you won't be going to Oban because you, you get, get a job in the in the fish farm and you sort of bring in some bring in some money and start earning a, earning a wage and you know I just thought I don't I don't want, I'm not ready to, to do, to do that. I kind of quite like, it just felt a bit too grown up and serious to sort of, you know, get a man's, a man's job. Yeah, um, so Alan and I decided to kind of go to Oban. There was others that were always going to go anyway, um, but we went and we weren't sort of welcome with, with open arms, um, really. By some people we were, but there was a real 1980s casuals sort of culture, like so sports casuals and yeah. sort of Neds as they later became yeah. in, in Oban. And it was really, um, it was a scary time and a very unpredictable time. And this was something that had happened with previous years. I think there'd always been this sort of, you know, Oban's a small place and there'd be these people that, you know, that, that would appear, you know, at the age of 16, 17, yeah from you know from the island and suddenly they were you know outsiders they were new they were different they might be getting more attention from local girls who were kind of had lost interest in the sort <laughs> yes. of the local stock um but at, at that point there was a, a a group of of lads that were older than us sort of eight you know they'd left school sort of 18 19 20 21 year olds that were just 
yeah, bampots. They were they right. sort of they had nothing in their life other than hanging out with this posse of kids, open kids from from school. Right. So you'd get these um, kids in first year, second year, third year, sort of that were, you know, devoted to these sort of <laughs> mafia dons, right. uh, and you know, so people getting jumped was uh-huh. <laughs> was a reg a regular a regular thing um so there was a sense of you know from you came off that monday morning ferry mm-hmm. until you got back on the ferry on the friday afternoon there was a, a real sense of fear not when you're out at the hostel but like uh, walking the streets or uh, at the school there was sort of just this undertone of you know because unpro- uh, yeah menace and uh, Things would come out of come out of nowhere, um, and yeah, for these dreaded weekends, if the ferry was cancelled and you had to stay, you know, stay in Oban for, you know, I don't think ever I had to stay for the whole weekend, uh-huh. but you know, you wouldn't get home on the on the Friday the Friday night. Um, but it was interesting. I liked sort of you know there was new new people that sort of we we met, um, but again sort of we. St- very few of us filtered out. There was a kind of hostile clique yeah, that we all right. we all stuck together because yeah. sort of you know the you know, people from different islands. There was that's the thing that tied us together. Yeah, we yeah. were kind of islanders, not from you know not from Oban or not from the mainland, and we stayed in the, the hostel. And that was sort of yeah. you know, that in itself was really hilarious. Like, I hated it to begin with. You know to to grow up with no rules, no regu- like just no one looking <laughs> over your shoulder and then literally to go to being incarcerated, which which you were. With boys. Yeah, uh, with boys. Dirty, smelly, smelly it boys. It was, it, that, I can put up with dirty, smelly boys, but it, it was just, there was a bell to wake you in the morning. There was a bell to tell oh, you when to, to go for, for breakfast. There was a bell to tell you when Dr. Pavlov to, was in. to get your shoes on. There was a bell when the bus arrived. And so it was just governed by this series of, and it was that sort of, um, you know, all the um, sort of fire alarm bell that would just, you know, resonate throughout the whole building. But through your whole life being planned out, or your kind of existence being planned out by a series of of bells, it gave the opportunity in between just to mess around and rebel against those those rules, and um, you know, it, it it was just. It was a really good laugh. There was just so many, just stupid, moronic kind of things. Sort of, it's not worth you know re- retelling. But we had a huge amount oh, of fun. Um, Joe Reed seems to be in the brunt of quite a few from what yeah, poor, yeah, poor Joe, because he was one of the few. You know, I I thought you know there wasn't such a thing as studiousness, and Joe was really he was really studious. He wasn't he wasn't a swat. He was he, Joe and I had a, a had a free a free period together. Um, when he was supposed to be studying and I was supposed to be studying, but I just sort of would sit and, and, and pester him. But I was like thinking, why is, he, is, why is he trying to work? There's no teacher here. Like He's got this book open and he's actually trying to work. It's a free period. It means you can just sort of like do, do nothing. There was a hostile disco. So that was, that was, that was a big event because you could invite any of the girls that you fancied or all the girls that you fancied out to the hostel disco um and you maybe you get a sense that you were slightly exotic because you were sort of you're not from Auburn you were from the islands and there was something strangely romantic about the the hostel or the old part of the hostel building or living out out there um but one occasion we'd sort of had the hostel disco and then there was a backlash to that sort of that local boys of the sort of local bad boys didn't like the fact that we were kind of you know making friends with the Local girls, yeah, yeah. and um, it was a sort of shooting incident. <laughs> like a bunch of boys were playing football out in the, the pitch at the back, and and there was a sort of uh, on that road down to the um, Kerala slipway. It's like a really high high cliff, and there was local boys with uh, with um, air rifles, kind of shooting on the uh, <laughs> shooting on the football the football pitch. That's um, nice. Which yeah, and it was sort of. So I never, you know, I, I think I had a I had a bad attitude towards. Open for a for a long time after that, just because of that sort of um, fear and and apprehension. I went back to Tobermory for for fifth year. You obviously you had to set a science, but that just seemed like too much hard work. So Alan and I went to the headmaster and said that we had wanted to become chefs. So could we take 
home economics as as a because it's domestic science, yeah. so it is a science. Uh, could we take that instead of taking biology or, or chemistry? Um, was that so, with Margaret Broad? Uh, yes. Oh, so that was permitted. So that was you know, by far my favourite class, and and Mrs Broad was um, yeah my favourite teacher back then. It was really it was because I enjoy I did enjoy enjoy cooking, and it was just yeah it was good it was good fun. It was doing something that was that I could see the point the point of it that you can use to spend a double period and at the end you have a Bakewell tart and that what, thing, what do you want from life? <laughs> and that you will eat whereas yeah. sort of you know I just uh, shamefully just dodged schoolwork um, and because I wasn't I wasn't seen as a troublemaker um, you got away with a lot I got away with a lot How did you come to meet uh, Nick Gordon? It kind of really, I met Nick Gordon really by by chance. He was very well known. He and Anne were very well known because they'd moved to to Mull mm-hmm. and they had renovated the cottage and they built um, uh, the captain's table. Ah. Um, so that was a big change in the in the town to yeah. have what was a very kind of classy classy restaurant yeah. uh, on the main street, and they sort of struck sort of stuck out as being exotic. Yeah. And sort of affluent, um, and sort of maybe not you know, not like many of us sort of hairy arse locals. <laughs> um, and one night, I kind of, uh, I probably realised a lot of my friends had got to the age we're starting to look for for jobs, for yeah. pocket money, and um, you know, for buying clothes and stuff. And a lot of my friends had jobs um, in the Mishnish and sort of different restaurants. Um, and yeah, McDonald Arms Hotel here, there, and everywhere. Um, and I thought, right, okay, I, I want a job. And there was, I thought, oh, I quite fancy working in one of the two main restaurants at the at the time, which was the Backbray Restaurant, mm-hmm. which was owned by Gillian and Emily King, mm-hmm. and the Captain's Table, that was owned by Nick and Anne Gordon. And Anne and Nick lived on Victoria Street, which was just a few doors down from from my house. And back then, I was really kind of very backwards at coming forwards. I didn't really, yeah, quite shy. And I thought the thought of knocking on anyone's door to ask for a job really <laughs> made Staying me feel... at the doorstep rather than running away. Yeah, made me, feel, <laughs> made me feel really uncomfortable. But I thought, right, I'm going to go out to ask either Gillian King or, or uh, Anne Gordon if Gosh. I could have a job. And I walked past, and I was just about to walk past Anne's door sort of chickening out. Mm-hmm. I thought... Bugger it, you know, I, I just just do it. And so I knocked on the door and Anne came to the door and said, I said, look, I'm just looking for any work, you know, once the season starts. And she thought, oh, yeah, well, come back into the um the restaurant sort of when it's opened, that this must have been kind of like air, very early spring. Um she said, pop into the restaurant when um once it sort of opens up in April. Um, so I did kind of walked in and I wasn't sure whether I had sort of had the job or not but I walked yeah. in and I was like oh yeah um, when can you start so I started off working during the day um, and a couple of times sort of actually Nick Nick was his career was starting to take off as a cameraman so yeah. he he, start, he was working in the restaurant during the day and would work there at night time but Nick wow. was starting to go places so I did work with him but he kind of I was under his radar and I was always maybe a wee bit intimidated by him yeah. because he was he was running a business he was a boss and he kind of he ran a very tight a tight ship it's ludicrous looking back because he was not a man to be intimidated by whatsoever yeah. um but then i kind of moved i didn't really like working during the the day so i moved to the evening and working with Anne, and it was just such a joy to work with with her she was such she's you know amazing woman really funny and lovely to to hang out with and there was other you know, other people, sort of all of all ages, not you know, sort of people my age, but there was older, older sort of ladies of the the town. When I say older; they were probably you know, thirties. Yeah, thirties, maybe not even that. But it was really it was an opportunity to get to know people that you didn't really yeah. really know. And it was really through working with Anne for a, a couple of years that I got to know, find out more about Nick's work as a as a wildlife cameraman. And he he was all over the place back back then, and I was just fascinated by you know that that existence of somebody that 
you know, I, I had barely met anyone that had been abroad. Like people didn't, you know, hadn't been on holiday really. There was sort of, you know, those that had were in the minorities. So for a man to be traveling to places like China and the Middle East and um, South America back in the mid eighties, it was, you know, really mind blowing that you were in a similar orbit to, to people that were doing those things yeah. because I always felt, I always grew up thinking that those things were for other yeah. other people. Um, and I kind of got, you know, really enamored by that as a as a way of life. And I was thinking along those lines of what could I do as a, as a career that, you know, would have all of those elements of, of yeah. adventure and excitement and being able to come back to, to Mull. You know, I, I wanted oh. to leave, but I, I always knew that I was, you know, I was, was coming back. And then I kind of went up and said, well, why don't you go up and speak to Nick when he gets back from his next, his next trip? Um, so we got back and I trooped up to his house one night and, you know, I was 16 at the time. I was like, you know, I don't, really know how to speak to adults on that level. If they, if they come in to, to book a table or if it's somebody you're working with in the restaurant, it's fine. But actually to have an adult conversation, uh, I was like, oh, how does this, how does this work? But when we actually met, because he was um, a very funny man and he was very, very immature and very inappropriate. So I thought, you know, especially once I got to know him, I was like, I, I think I'm the adult here, <laughs> if there is one. Um, but we kind of got on incredibly well I think because I was had him on a on a pedestal as far as not as a not as a person but just as a sort of an example as a way of life of sort of that somebody could be living in Tobermory but yet have this extraordinary um lifestyle and I think he must have he must have seen in me sort of that kind of starry-eyed look I was really captivated by it and I think he must have realized that and he gave me a, a heap of books and back then I wasn't a reader at all but he gave me all these books and it was the first time it was just the books about cinematography and books but mostly books about nature um and I sort of consumed them yeah. partly because it interested me but I wanted to show t- to Nick that I was serious about this never thinking never at all thinking that there was a job in the cards or he might get but I just wanted to know more about his world so it was it was good enough for me to be kind of closer in his his orbit. And then he had me kind of run into wee errands. You know what, I'd run down to the post office or do this or that, or if it was over and over and let pick something up from, you know, the train station. Christ, I'd love to have somebody, some young kid to do all these things. And he was never shy at kind of, you know, dishing out the, those those jobs. Yeah. And I was, you know, more than eager to, you know, to to help him and it was to do things to the best of my ability um that was sort of i think because at school not that i had a chip on my shoulder because that's sort of if i did i put that chip there myself because i it's my own fault that i didn't i didn't work hard mm-hmm. it was my own fault that i took the wrong the wrong choices and, and my own fault that i was you know leaving school at 17 with you know nothing that i could could build on so i kind of did want to show and i think a lot of the teachers probably just thought it was a a bit of an umpty kind of no no hoper. So I kind of did, not overtly, but I, I did internally wanted to kind of prove to myself that I actually could, you know, I was kind of better than appearances might uh, uh, might be. And out of the blue, Nick said, look, I've this project's come up. It's in Sierra Leone in West Africa. I need an assistant. Yeah. Would you be interested in, in doing it? He said, before you say anything, the one thing that I need from you on top of all the other things of your sort of duties and roles and your sort of work remit is that if you do this, it is from start to finish. It's sort of, it's a year and a half um, and you can't duck out of it. You have to do it. We would be coming back halfway through. That to me, I was like, you know, he was goose that had laid a kind of huge golden egg that he was sort of offering it to me that I was being handed a lot of what you know what he had as far as you know that ability to to explore and travel and 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 sort of broaden your horizons and um and maybe stand maybe stand out from from everyone else and I think that's sort of a thing with a lot of people in a lot of communities and it's sort of immodest to say but you kind of do want to stand out from 
from everyone else. And, and some people do that through sport or through music or through sort of like academic excellence. But if you're just kind of sort or of mine. there, <laughs> or mine, um, but if you're just there kind of, you know, fuzzy and sort of in the middle, um, you kind of want to prove yourself. And that's, I think, you know, young people, yes. you know, it's a, it's a healthy, healthy thing to, to have. What was it like, you know, Oban, Dumbarton, Tobermory, Sierra Leone, what was the first experience of getting off you know, the classic thing of the plane door opening? What was that like to experience that? What I didn't realise was that I'd actually always had maybe an adventurous inclination, an adventurous spirit. So even when we lived in Dumbarton, there was a sort of, on the edge of the of Bellsmire, there was a sort of gorge area that I thought was a wilderness. I used to sort of go up there and lose myself and would always sort of, you know, just like taking myself away and sometimes with other, other kids. And then when we moved to, to Mall, that in itself, I had no sense of sort of sadness or, or, or loss or when we moved to Mall. And I was fully aware that it's like, I remember, okay, these are all your friends, primary one, primary two, off you go. And I didn't, I really didn't look back. I didn't miss, didn't miss anyone. And then Mull could have offered this opportunity to explore, you know, put it on steroids because you had so many places that you could go and so many things you could get get up to. Um, so really sort of going to Sierra Leone when I was 17, it was really kind of only, it was only what I'd been doing all my all my life. It just sort of, you know, it was a different, it wasn't the other side of the bay, it was the other side of the, the other side of the world. And, you know, I, I'd never been on a plane before, I'd never been to, to London. So that, that in itself was the first sort of big, part of this new experience um but really when the doors opened in freetown in, in sierra leone back in what was that january 1990 i i kind of walked out and i had this overwhelming recognition of that i'd made a big mistake everything was so different you know this sort of Comfort zone is obviously a term we could use, but it was it wasn't even that. It was so alien to me. The temperature and the humidity, the the smell of the the town, the city, the buildings, everything about it. There was just there was nothing nothing familiar. I felt that I'd come, you know, in just a couple of days, had things had changed, you know, enormously. Yeah, the world had turned. Yeah. It was the fourth of fourth of January, nineteen ninety, that we we left Tob, and I'd never been away from Mum for more than maybe ten ten days, and leaving all sort of close close knit community and a very close friends, and I was leaving all of that behind. And as we we did a circuit of the town before we kind of headed down on the Salem Road and went down the main street, and it was the first little kind of doubt that I had. It wasn't sort of here we go into this sort of wide blue yonder. I thought I don't really know what lies what lies ahead. And then, so a couple of days later, went to London and then sort of flew out to Sierra Leone. And it dis it it was it was overwhelmingly different. As, as great an opportunity as it was, and I think people that know me from from home would think, oh, that's that amazing opportunity, which it undoubtedly was but of it it was a really difficult time at that age to be away from from everything and everyone in 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 a place that was so so strange you know if i was to go to somewhere like sierra leone now i'd just revel in in you know what what sets it aside but then it was just you know culture shock on a completely new level culture shock in a boy of 17 that's never really been off of mall that much Thank you so much, Gordon. It was great to spend time with you. What stands out for me in this episode is the nature of friendship and how great friendships last and continue to give meaning to our lives. I think that's particularly beautiful. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, 
I'm looking to fundraise through donations. So if you feel like it and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee or even the price of a bag of homemade tablet from a jumble sale, whatever you may be, through the website. You'll see a donate tab there where you can donate if you so wished. I've also got a Patreon page for donations, which you can find under my name, Alistair Satchel. If you want to contribute to that, you're more than welcome. But don't worry if you can't donate or you don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened than you didn't. And on that note, thank you very much, Martin. I really appreciate it. Also, to help me grow the podcast, if you want to leave a rating or a review on whichever platform you use to listen, I'd be most grateful. And thank you to those of you that have. I really, really appreciate it. And also, thank you to those of you who reach out to say hello. As ever, it's great to hear from you. Thank you. As I said at the start of the podcast, this episode has been sponsored by Tourist Mara, who I know Gordon's been out with in the past. If you're into wildlife photography, a trip to Staffa and the Trishnish Isles is one of the most exciting opportunities the West Coast has to offer. It's well worth a trip. It's world class. As ever, the webpage, whatwedointhewinter.com, has all the links and info you'll need from this episode. And we can be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I must apologise for the background noise here. I am currently in the hotel, the holiday inn in uh, Glasgow airport <laughs> before heading off for a quick job and then back at the weekend. So please excuse the odd noise of in the background. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. More in time. Shinakate.